This episode brought to you by Michael Crate and James Husband. Special love goes out to Lee Kemp, who manages our Facebook page. If you like what you're hearing here on the Sci-Fi Diner, feel free to leave us a tip at patreon.com backslash sci-fi, spelled the right way. And by Audible. Get a free audiobook when you sign up today. Audibletrial.com backslash sci-fi diner. Engage. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, where we serve up interviews, news, and our view on the world of science fiction. Come, grab a chair, and enjoy the conversations. I think we've got an unexpected guest. Rose, we're going, we don't need Rose. I've got a bad feeling about it. Quiet. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And good evening, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And we are once again sans M tonight, but tonight... Instead of a cruise, we're going to blame Home Depot. Em is being a good daughter to her mother. We can't uh, can't hold that against her. But Home Depot is being a bad son. I'm just saying. And Em is going to give them a piece of her mind. So I would watch out Home Depot. Saying, oh, I, I I would I fear for Home Depot. I, I would definitely fear for Home Depot. But yes. uh, so Emma's not with us tonight, but she will be back on the next show. Don't you worry. She's still involved with the diner. She just had some other obligations outside of here. Miles, since we are a diner, I want to know what's on the menu. Can you help me out? Certainly. So for um, for appetizers, we're going to be serving what's going on in, in uh, our sci-fi world. Uh, we have some um, TV show news with, for Timeless and, and Star Wars Rebels. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about Black Panther. I finally had a chance to see it. And, uh, and our, our, our main dish, uh, we, we had a, a great interview with uh, Chris uh, Vanderkay. And uh, he, him and his w- wife, uh, their writing team, they have they have some great books out, but they have, a new, they have a great book out that will probably be out by the time this episode uh, airs. Um, so you'll, you'll, you'll check that out. And for our dessert, uh, our sci-fi five of five, since we talk about, uh, great space battles and movies, I came up with a list of great space battles in sci-fi TV shows. Awesome. I thought when you were going to say certainly that you were going to do it in the style of the three stooges. No, I'm going to leave. But my, that's another, th- th- another thing. Um, I, I, uh, Kind of obsessed about, but I'm going to leave that You're out. You're going to leave that out? Certainly. Yeah. So I can't even do it. Who did that? Is that Curly that did it that way? Or Mo? That was Curly, That was yes. Curly. I got it right, and I don't even watch but, Stooges, so. so awesome. That, that, that's, that's, for, that, that's for the Three Stooges podcast. Yeah, that's a different podcast. Miles has that. Make sure you check out. I'm just kidding. He doesn't have a podcast of that, yeah. but you should, Miles. You should. Maybe I should. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into what's going on in our sci-fi world. Miles, why don't you go ahead uh, and give us uh, what's going on in your sci-fi world, and we can talk about any of these things a little bit if you want. So I did get a chance to see Black Panther. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think it it lives up to all the great reviews it's been given. Uh, I I finished up Punisher on Netflix. Very well-written show. Very violent. So maybe if, if 
If violence is not your thing, maybe avoid Punisher. Watching Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, Altered Carbon. Uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has uh, started up again. Their first episode recently aired. Uh, I finished the Star Trek Discovery novel, uh, Drastic Measures uh, by Dayton Ward. Very enjoyable novel. And I discovered this uh, gem at the local comic book store. I was picking up my uh, comic book books, and a uh, comic book store owner said, uh, I guess he was just talking about crossover. He said, yeah, there's even a old Battlestar Galactica versus new Battlestar Galactica. I'm like, what? <laughs> I got to check I got to check this out. And uh, he may not have given the best sales pitch, but it was enough to um, sell me. So uh, the first two issues are out. Uh, I'm enjoying, enjoying that. There's a, if you're fans of both shows, there's an interesting exchange or interesting situation with um, Apollo from classic Battlestar Galactica and Tom Zarek from uh, reimagined Battlestar Galactica. Uh, both those characters were played by um, Richard Hatch. Yeah, the late great Richard Hatch. But yeah, yes, late great Richard Hatch. Um, yeah. So I, I, I want to ask you about two things in your list. So you saw Black Panther. What did you think of Black Panther? Oh, I loved it. Um, Marvel rarely do- makes a mistake. It does something wrong with their movies, and I really think they they gave a great even though it wasn't really an origin story, but kind of was as far as, you know, who Black Panther was, who his people were, um, since it took place after the events of uh, Captain America Civil War. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Cool. And Altered Carbon is the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Did you finish the season or, you, or is it still airing? Um. It's a Netflix show, so all the episodes are are there. I just haven't finished. I haven't finished watching it. However, I'm up to the episode where uh, Max Frewer, uh, who we talked at uh, Farpoint, uh, I saw his character, and after seeing his character, it's 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 only a character he can play. Absolutely. Um, uh, So that was kind of cool. Just you know, having met him, you know, about about a month ago, now seeing him, you know. on, on, on this show. So that, that was really cool. Well, I'm looking forward to bringing the interview. I haven't even listened to the interview yet because you had a chance to do it at shore leave and I couldn't mm-hmm. be there, but I'm so excited to be hearing that interview that you had with him. So he, he gave us a great interview. Well, in my sci-fi world, uh, so <laughs> it's actually not a heck of a lot. I watch a, a few anime shows, but nothing of consequence. Actually, I take that back. I'm rewatching The Boy and the Beast, which is absolutely a fantastic anime movie if you're into anime. Also reading Wise Man's Fear. This is a Patrick Rothfuss book that I'm reading for the podcast, The Old World Sword, which I do with David Moulton and Jim Arrowwood. Jim Arrowwood is a listener of the show. And I am also rewatching Doctor Who. Uh, my son, Kiefer, is absolutely loving Doctor Who, and so we began watching the very first season, and by first season, we're talking about the Christopher Eccleston era. We didn't go all the way back Uh-oh. to the 50s. but I was going to ask no, about that. No, <laughs> just uh, started with Christopher Eccleston, and he really liked it, and so we watched it together, and uh, I plan on continuing that with him in just a little bit. So so that's it. That's what I've been watching. I'm, even, I'm behind in X-Files and behind in some other things. I did watch Black Panther, as we talked about in the last show. 
I just think it's great that you're introducing uh, your son to Dr. Oh, Hill. me too. Me too. And he loves it. And actually, I should say that he requested it because he has some friends in his fifth grade class that are avid Hoovians. Mm-hmm. He is convinced. He is convinced that he needs to be that he needs to watch at least ten episodes of Doctor Who to be considered a Hoovian. So, a lot of material out there. Yes, yes. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how far we get. Well, let's move into some of our science fiction news. Uh, and uh, yeah, so Timeless is returning. Miles, did you watch Timeless when it was on the first time? I did, and I really enjoyed it. And I was thrilled that. Uh, it was coming back for a second season. It was it was re- very touch and go whether it would or not, but enough fans uh, expressed themselves to NBC, and so we we, we we're, we're at least getting another season with Timeless. Um, you know, we're happy we have a time sh- time travel show. Yeah, absolutely. And Matt Fuhrer was on that first season, although because of the way he ended first season, probably won't see him back. Doubtful. Doubtful. Well, you never know. Science fiction can resurrect the dead. We do know that, but he played. One of the central characters in Timeless first season, kind of a sidekick right. to uh, the uh, central character. So, yeah, I guess he he would have been one of the the, the designers and builders of the time of the actual time machine itself. Yeah, yeah. So we'll find out whether they're still pursuing Rittenhouse, and that's kind of the big nemesis in the show. So we'll see what happens. So it will be Sunday at 10 p.m. It returns. So we're excited about that. Rebels. Let's talk Rebels. Miles, you watching the new season of Rebels? I I am not. I don't really have a way to get the show. Um, I'm so I I enjoyed it when it, when the first season came out, but um, I think you have to have the Disney Channel. I think now to get it, yeah, or pay for it. It's not. I don't think it's on Hulu, right? It's not on Hulu, so I, unfortunately, I, I haven't caught much of it. Maybe someday it'll be on Netflix or something where where, where I can. Um, but I, I know that uh, Admiral Thrawn has made an appearance, made a couple appearances in he, last season. He is the central character, and even in this finale that's coming up, they're doing a ninety-minute finale for the show, and it is the series finale, not just the season. It's a series finale for it, and Thrawn is a major player in the finale. So I just think it's cool. You know, we interviewed Timothy Zahn and we'll be bringing you that, that interview as well. We're teasing you tonight, but we'll be bringing you that interview down the line. And Thrawn is, is Timothy Zahn's baby. So it's neat to see this character come to life in Rebels and get more life than just the novelizations. Right. I mean, uh, when, when Disney basically the, uh, Star Wars extended universe, as far as the novels are concerned, I mean, they got rid of a, a great character. Fortunately, he, he's seeing new life in, in, in uh, Rebels and, uh, and Timothy Zahn's new, newer novels. So we do have to talk about Black Panther because Black Panther, from the get-go, has been breaking records majorly. And it is now in the top 10 all-time box office champs for domestic movies. So this isn't worldwide. But this is domestically, it is in the top 10. And so here's kind of just a little bit of the premise. It It is now brought in more than $506 million domestically. And that surpasses the live-action Beauty of the Beast and Finding Dory in one fell swoop 
kicking the ladder out of the top 10. Black Panther now ranks at number nine behind Rogue One, a Star Wars story by about $26 billion. And that is insane and pretty awesome. I, I think what's happening is a lot of people are going to go see, they're seeing the movie a second and even a third time. It has it, it really resonated with uh, people. I don't know if you saw, but uh, Jimmy Kimmel had this. That was um, awesome. I did see it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, f- listeners, if you haven't seen it, uh, Jimmy Kimmel staged this thing where he, he had fans, they, they could like record a message to the um, the lead actor who plays uh, Black Panther. And so they're, they're saying something very heartfelt and, um, you know, the actor comes out, he goes, oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Or something like that. And they're shocked because they don't, they didn't expect to see him, but so he comes out and they're all excited because, you know, the actor played Black Panthers there. And, uh, um, so it's, it, so, some, you know, some of it's very funny because they, 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 somebody said, uh, you know, I, I've seen the movie twice. I've seen it once. I, or I pirated it. Or I saw a pirated version and I was like, you're pirating my movie. And, uh, <laughs> so, but the guy had gone to see it like two or three times in the theater as well. So, oh yeah. So <laughs> he, he invested. Yeah. So if you, you know, knowing how much movie going to see movie costs these days, the guys already threw down a lot of cash to go see the movie. So <laughs> we could, we could, we could forgive him for pirating it at least once. You know, I wonder if I were to put money on this, cause the movie's only out a couple weeks. It is quite possible that it will surpass Rogue One. Yeah, I, I think uh, it, it, it. I think so too. I mean, it, it has more time to make more money, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. So here is a list of top ten because I don't know these. Maybe listeners, you do, and maybe I'm just telling you something. But here, are the, here they're at the top ten domestic grosses. Number one, Miles. Can you guess what it is? Oh. um... For, I was going to say Titanic, but now I'm thinking maybe, maybe it was Avatar. Okay, you actually named number two and three. Uh, Avatar was number two. Number three is Titanic. Number one actually is Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Oh, okay. That came in almost almost a billion dollars domestically. Not quite. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty awesome. Jurassic World came in at number four. Marvels Avengers. Came in at number five, Star Wars Last Jedi, number six, The Dark Knight at number seven, number eight's Rogue One, number nine, Black Panther, and number 10, Beauty and the Beast. And you'll notice that all these films, minus, minus Titanic, were science fiction and fantasy. And and how many of those uh, movies are Disney properties, too? Uh, let's see. Well, Force Awakens... Oh, Marvel's Avengers, Star Wars, da, da, da. at least four or five, maybe, well, probably seven of them. So Avatar, Titanic, yeah. and Jurassic World are not, but they're all Spielberg, right? No, um, they are. Two of those are Cameron, one of them is Spielberg. Right. So, so you know, D- Disney is putting out, you know, blockbusters as far as, you know, Make, making movie in a short, make, making money in, in a very short period of time. Well, and I guess that Dark Knight is not also Disney, but yeah, well, yeah. So, 
Well, very cool. And then when you jump down to the next five, it's Finding Dory, which is Disney. Star Wars Episode One, which wasn't Disney, I guess is now owned by Disney. Then it's Star Wars, the original one, Avengers, and Dark Knight Rises. Notice at that point, we're still predominantly in science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. So, um, you know, get that Oscars. I mean, yeah. that's where, you know. Well, they don't. I guess it's not where the money goes, but. All right. Well, very good. So this is, uh, anyways, that list that we weren't planning on talking about, but that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right. Well, before we go in to talk a little bit about our interview that we're going to do tonight, we're going to play a promo. This is a promo for Zogpod Studios, who produces the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. If you are a podcaster and are, are looking into getting into podcasting, you'll want to check them out. Do you dream of starting a podcast like the one you're listening to now, but don't know where to start? Or perhaps you're a podcaster looking to cut down on your editing time. ZogPod Studios offers a full range of podcasting solutions for podcasters who are just starting their journey to seasoned podcasters looking to create more content. With over 10 years of podcasting experience, our staff can help you develop intros and outros, edit your show, master it, and help connect you to your audience. Visit us at ZogPod.com to find your podcasting solutions. And we are back. So, Miles, who do we have an interview with tonight? So tonight we are speaking with uh, uh, Chris uh, Vanderkay uh, and Sans' his wife. Uh, sadly, his wife was, was uh, ill tonight, so she couldn't be part of the interview. But uh, their writing team, and we're talking about a um, little bit about the, the horror genre, but also about uh, his new book um, about uh, indie sci-fi films. Yeah, absolutely. And what a fantastic guest to have in the show. Well-spoken. And uh, I feel like he wrote, he he helped our intelligence grow a little bit, Miles. Yes, he definitely <laughs> had a lot of I- IQ points to our podcast. Yes, yes, and uh, uh, well spoken and definitely knowledgeable. And uh, so, if you get a chance, you'll definitely want to check out his book. Um, and he'll tell you where to find it in the show. But it, we we also found out at the very end that he was a uh, diehard listener of the Sci Fi Diner. Yeah, that was uh, that was nice to hear. I'm, uh, so I'm and. We we sort of helped you know make his days bearable yeah. in, in hot when he was when he was landscaping. You know, I went back the other day just to listen to the Christopher Heyerdahl interview that he did, and I am grateful that we are still recording and that we have grown <laughs> because our our <laughs> audio quality back then. God bless Chris if you listen to it, but I guess it was many podcasts that had that quality. But we definitely have improved at least hopefully a little bit along the way. So. Oh, we do. We, yeah, we have. But anyways, without further ado, here's our interview with Chris. Hope you enjoy it, and we'll catch you on the other side of the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, we're delighted to talk. Be talking with uh, uh, Chris Vanderkay, and uh, he and his wife are a writing team. They have wrote the book "The Anatomy of Fear," 
conversations with, with cult horror and science fiction. We'll be talking about their new work that's coming up. Chris, uh, we're delighted to have you on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Uh, thanks for taking time to talk with us. Absolutely. Thank you guys for allowing me to come on. Awesome. Especially with a book release right around the corner. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know when this drops, depending on how fast it might already be out. Who knows? Yeah. Well, it'll be closed. I typically have a, about a two-day turnaround. And if we have a snow day tomorrow, because we have snow in the East Coast supposed to be hitting us, I might get it done. Yeah. So by the time our voices hit your ears, you may be able to go and buy that book as we speak. Absolutely. Well, we'll talk about where they can buy that in just a little bit. You have an interesting book out now. You'll have you have a new book out real soon. But you have you and your wife have uh, very interesting day jobs. Can you tell us a little little about what you what you do on the side, or or I mean your uh, your day job? Oh, so one of our manyest numerous our numerous side hustles, right? <laughs> um, yeah, actually, Kathy and I are both uh, professors currently, and. Uh, we we came about it the long way around. Uh, usually people become professors and then they're like, I'd like to publish now that I have a steady job. And we did the opposite, the way that you're not supposed to do it, which is we became writers and did it for many years and then noticed that bills were not being paid. So we thought we should probably look into that, maybe start paying some bills. So we started <laughs> going back to school while we were putting out books and we got our master's degree. So now we teach... Um, Depending on the, the semester, we teach English, we teach intro to film, poetry, different courses like that. Um, I'd love to obviously eventually move into teaching courses that focus on science fiction and horror. But, you know, you have to be into the system for quite a while before you can start suggesting things that people find to be offbeat or, you know, uncommon. So but hopefully I'll be able to get there to start teaching sociology of science fiction or philosophy of horror classes, things like that. But that's what we do during the day. That that sounds awesome. That's uh, it is I mean, awesome. I mean, if I was in college, that's the kind of stuff I'd like to take. That that's that, that that's something I would definitely gravitate to. You know, as far as the class class take. Yeah, well, I mean, we've been smuggling that kind of conversation into any course. You know, we've been <laughs> teaching uh, we've been teaching English comp this semester, and I taught a um, we were teaching a concept essay, and I basically used a segment from the horror documentary that we made to show them how you present the concept and then how you define it and defend it. So that was kind of fun. Well, that is cool. You know, I've been, I've been finding that too. I'm an, I'm an English teacher uh, in my day job and uh, teach seniors in high school how to write. But I've been incorporating, I incorporated some Stark into it, some, uh, some well, I, Back to the Future. I, uh, I am now teaching a science fiction lit course uh, that we kind of weaseled into the system. So I, I, I'm with you on that to get yeah. the genre in. So. Yeah, we're doing the we're we're creating all the things that we desperately would have appreciated when we were stuck in high school. <laughs> uh, isn't that the truth? You're an author, a journalist, or at least you've dabbled in journalism at least a little bit. But you also dabbled a little bit in TV movie writing. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you've done in uh, TV movies? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I would listen. I would love to like fully endorse the film. That uh, that it ended up being made from a screenplay of ours. What I will say, <laughs> it has been it has been a great boon to us because it always looks good on any resume when you get to tell someone that you made a feature film that premiered on the Hallmark Movie Channel. However, having said that, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, what the thing that nobody ever tells you when you write a screenplay and you are only the writer is that the second that you're done with the screenplay, you have to start saying goodbye to all of the things that you love about it because those are the things that will inevitably be trimmed out. Wow. Uh, we wrote we wrote a, a Western uh, feature screenplay. It's uh, we sort of called it. It was like sort of a dark spiritual successor to Unforgiven. Like if the flip side, like what if he had uh, uh, what if he had not left? What if he had tried to like become a good man and 
and not fallen back in his ways, what, how would his life have changed? We wrote that. It ended up becoming a, um, a very sort of preachy Christian film that ended up on the Hallmark movie channel that was, uh, produced by Rick Santorum, failed presidential, uh, uh, well, I guess from his failed presidential run, he went on to create this company that then bought our film. And so through no control of my own, a, a, a failed presidential nominee put out a film that I don't really feel like even reflects particularly the script that I wrote. So there's the, um, there's, there's the good and bad behind right. uh, any film that you didn't shoot yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's probably a, uh, that's probably, not uncommon for writers to oh, yeah. uh, to to release a script into the wild and have it be when it comes to fruition it doesn't quite look the way they were intending yeah i mean we're what are we 45 years down the line robert town is still complaining about the end of chinatown you know yeah, so true yeah so i guess it's to be expected with the uh the market and uh but you do you're right you do have the credit and that that looks good on a resume yeah. No, it, it opens doors that would not have otherwise been open. So while I'm always honest about the circumstances, I can never say I'm mad about having uh, how the way it played out because, you know, I have something I wouldn't have otherwise had. Yeah, absolutely. I know why sci-fi appeals to me. Why does horror appeal to so many people, whether they be whether that, that be in either the literature or on the screen, in your opinion? That is a fascinating question. And I think while I, you know, I can give a certain level of high-minded answer, the first thing I can admit to is, the reason that I'm still writing about it is because I'm basically still trying to figure that out. Um, I can understand why certain aspects of it appeal to me. Uh, but then there's always there's, there's this enormous question I've always had with horror, which is horror is designed to make you uncomfortable. It's designed to uh, put you through things that you wouldn't want to go through if it was in real life. And yet it's, you know, one of the most prolific genres uh, in, in existence. You know, so many movies come out and they're so incredibly successful that it makes you wonder, like, what is it we're seeking when we go to watch horror films, why are we seeking out uh, terrible experiences in art that we would want to avoid at all costs in life? And, uh, you know, I think not to you know plug it again, but we made a documentary called Fear Man, which is actually available on Amazon Prime currently. If uh, if anybody has access to it, it's called Fear Man because I posit a theory that the idea is that we seek out horror films because they're honest with us about our own culpability in almost every problem in existence. I basically posit the idea that um, horror films are trying in many different symbolic ways, about five different symbolic ways, to remind us that man is almost always the problem in any circumstance. Certainly in any horror film, he's the villain, but also sort of subtly in real life, we're almost always the problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I think in some ways horror kind of reminds us of that, of uh, in an existentialist way, but also in, I think in a spiritual way, that we're responsible for the harm of other people as well. And we need to think about that. We need to consider that. And and it's one of the few genres that shows you violence on a personal level so that you can recognize the impact of violence on other people in a way that dramas and, and uh, action films and things like that don't really dwell on. So I think that might be part of what draws us to it, is a sense of being told something honestly. I guess the, uh, the, the question that that kind of leads to then is, do we learn from it? It's a great question. And I, and I think I, I would say this, uh, this is an interesting statistic that I've not really been able to follow up with any, I, I don't have any hard data, but I know a lot of people in the horror community, particularly horror writers, uh, people that work on websites and, and film, uh, film enthusiasts. And I found a surprising number of vegetarians and vegans in the horror community. And oh, that's surprising. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me. And I wonder if, if it has something to do with the fact that people who are compassionate by nature 
are still interested in the idea of violence, but not in, in enacting it themselves. And so horror is the place where they can understand the idea of taboos and what scares people and, you know, ramifications of violence without in any way endorsing actual violence, you know? And I wonder if, I wonder if that might have something to do with it. I've heard one, Go ahead, I've heard one said that some, some people watch it, they, they get a strange catharsis from watching a horror movie. I mean, they don't I mean this is not something they would like you said some things they would avoid in real life but in a horror movie you see all humanity's violent impulses and some some people i don't know get 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 catharsis from it i don't know if you yeah. ever heard that before oh yeah no i i definitely think there might be something to the idea that our brain is not all that much developed from where we started when, you know, when we were cavemen, when we got up every single day and when we woke up from the second we woke to the second we went to sleep, we were in existential danger all the time. We, uh, our brain worked on needing to be ready to fear something because that's what's going to keep us alive. Our brain still in some ways kind of operates like that, even though we don't, at least in, in the first world for the most part, exist in a world where we have to fear for our lives every second of the day. And so I wonder if sometimes the way that modern anxiety has taken hold of the human psyche is because we don't have a place to put the fears that our brain still produces in us. And so perhaps that's a way in which it's it's allowing us to vent them in a safe way. You know, and I wonder, going back to the other question, is if we did a study on, like, violent crime, if there's a sissy that says people who, who – I don't know how you would do that, you know, where you'd say, well, people who watch horror are less prone to commit violent crime. Well, one thing I know for sure, and you probably know this as a, as a teacher as well, um, that uh, they have proven that many of the people who become violent in their lives are people who have not had much exposure to the arts, period. Mm. And one of the things that that does is it makes it difficult for them to be able to differentiate between art and life if they haven't been exposed to it early enough and understand the differences between it. That's why, you know, a guy who is maybe a little mentally unbalanced and watches The Dark Knight who has never had any arts training in his life, has never been raised in a community where that's an important thing. That's the first thing that people cut when they start cutting budgets for education is the arts, that when people don't understand the difference between fantasy and reality, or they haven't been trained to understand that there is a clear um, and unambiguous difference between them, then, you know, I I think it is possible that people have trouble being able to separate the two. I mean, there have been people who have said that they uh, you know, they've committed crimes and then later realized that it was not as glamorous or as cool as the thing that they saw somewhere. And so I wonder if it has to do less with uh, this movie made them do it and more with they were unaware of the difference between reality and fantasy because we as educators didn't arm them enough with, uh, you know, simple things like that. Interesting. Yeah, and I, w- I think I would tend to agree with that. And I think, too, the uh, video game culture has also played a little bit into students do things because it's glamorized video games and then realize that it's kind of has the same feel, I think. Yeah. And, and obviously I'm the last person in the world to blame the art. I always feel like art is not responsible for it. It's the people who are either not monitoring the person or not educating people about the art that are ultimately responsible. You know, right. I mean, uh, this is not something that was dangerous, but a student of mine told me that her nephew, uh, when hit, when their grandfather died, her nephew was talking to her about, um, needing to get enough gems so that grandpa would be able to come back because all he understood was the <laughs> idea of respawning in a video game, right? Like he oh, didn't yeah. understand the idea that when someone's gone, they're gone forever. And so he was thinking the way that video game thinking works because they just want you to keep playing. They don't want your character to die. 
And so he didn't really have that higher thinking necessary to understand that grandpa's gone and he's not coming back. And that was a really profound thing when she told me that. I thought, wow, you know, and that's not necessarily the game's fault. The game isn't in endorsing that life, uh, that life view, but no one has talked to this kid about it. So he doesn't know any better. And that's interesting. And some of that you could chalk up to just being, depending how old the kid was, just being a, you know, a young kid who is drawing his own conclusions of the world around him. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. Listen, we all had really stupid ideas when we were <laughs> five years old. Uh, isn't that the truth? So, <laughs> Hopefully um, we've been disabused of them by now, yeah. but we'll see. Uh, sometimes you might still have stupid ideas, but you know, whatever. I want to talk about this book that you wrote um, and it, it, this current book that you have. Uh, where you're kind of uh, tell us a little bit about it. It, it. This one's a departure from horror. We've been talking about horror, but this book is coming out in three days and maybe is out already. If you're listening, tell us a little bit about your delving into the science fiction world. Yeah. Well, this new book, it's called Indie Science Fiction Cinema Today. And the, the premise of the book essentially is we talked to about, I want to say about 50 filmmakers total, um, independent filmmakers that have worked in the science fiction film arena. And there was a couple of reasons that we wanted to look into sci-fi. The first is obviously we always feel while horror is really important, sometimes it's, it's a little depressing. And while science fiction can be, if it's a dystopia or a post-apocalypse story, there's something inherently a little bit more positive and forward looking about science fiction than there is about horror. So obviously it's nice every once in a while, even though I love talking about horror and exploring it to take a break and maybe look at the brighter side of things. And so that was goal one with uh, looking at science fiction. But the other thing that fascinated us was um, the way that we believe when we look at movies, the movies are in some ways a timestamp for the moment that uh, the film was made. Uh, in essence, even though it takes place in the distant future or the distant past, it's still in some way speaking to what's happening in the moment. Um, and all great, all of the great films, whether they're conscious or unconsciously doing it, they are doing it. And what we noticed was, especially the films between the year 2000 and now, um, Films have been progressing uh, in an amazing at an amazing pace, um, evolving, and I and we were curious as to what we felt like that would uh, why that was. So we wanted to just go to the source because uh, Hollywood doesn't change as quickly. You know, Hollywood wants to stick with what works as long as it possibly can. Whereas the independent world, it changes very quickly because that's where you get to say what you want to say. It doesn't, you know, your idea doesn't get whittled down to whatever is comfortable for everyone. And so we sort of went into it with two questions. The first question was. Um, how has technology changed the way that films are made? And that's a big thing within the independent film movement because uh, digital and streaming, all of those things have changed, not, not only being able to make a movie, but get a movie out to other people. But then the other thing was, how have the past 16 years of the world, or at least 16 when we started it, how has the rapid pace of social changes because of technology in some cases changed the way that we tell science fiction stories? We're literally seeing some things that were science fiction coming true in real time around us. So how does that change the way we tell stories about the future or about, uh, you know, rapidly evolving technology? So those were the kind of the two main premises that brought us to this book. And uh, what were some, without spoiling the book, what were some of your discoveries along the way? Well, one of the things that I thought was amazing, it was fascinating and, and really sort of inspiring in some ways is there are a lot of great weird films that have come out in the past 15 years. Um, if you want strange films that were made with um, with love and a lot of ingenuity, you kind of have to jump back to before the 80s. The 80s is really when 
corporations kind of took over film. And not that there weren't any independent films in the 80s and 90s, obviously there were, but science fiction has always been hard to make uh, good on a low, low budget because it looks cheap. And so you have to go back to the 50s and 60s to find some endearingly weird movies. And sometimes that weirdness is just as a result of how cheap or how uh, specific to the period it is. Whereas now we're getting films like like one of the ones I use as, as a great example, we talk in the book, there's an entire section just about science fiction musicals. And I expected when I went into the book that we'd maybe find one or two. Uh, I started with The American Astronaut, which is in a fantastic movie by Corey McAbee. Um, and I started looking, sort of working my way out from there. And then you suddenly realize there are a lot more of these than I would have thought, especially within the past 15 or 16 years. And it's because they're less expensive to make. Therefore, people who are passionate about that can finally get their project off the ground. You know, I mean, aside from, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show and, and a couple of, I mean, a small handful of films from the 50s and 60s, uh, they're really, that really wasn't a genre. And then suddenly, it, I don't want to say exploded because I still only think of 10 or 12, but that's huge in comparison to the rest of history where there's only been like four or five, you wow. know? Wow. Well, you know, and the only one I can think of as we're talking is Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Right, yeah. We t I think I mentioned that one in the book. And then obviously, um, you know, there are certain films that ride the border, you know, like technically films like The Wizard of Oz is obviously fantasy, but it, it delves into that. Then there's these weird films like something called Gonks Go Beat, which is this <laughs> I, genuinely just seek it out and watch the trailers. That will be enough. You don't have to go any further into it. Gonks but, um, Go Beat, huh? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's worth it. I promise anybody looking it up right now, it's both worth it. And it's also maybe the worst use of three minutes of your time at the same time. <laughs> Even sci-fi TV has, uh, you know, done their own version of a musical uh that is true i remember so, fringe did fringe did that they had a musical yep yeah, yeah. no it, it's interesting yeah that, and when when you are freed from uh and i don't want to say completely freed from financial boundaries but when financial boundaries aren't the only decision to make a film i think a great example is a film like i don't know if you guys have seen uh coherence i would have to imagine uh that you've at least heard about it if not watched it i've heard but, it. I haven't watched it. yeah coherence is a film uh, I don't want to spoil what it's about, but I will say it's a really interesting high concept movie that the filmmaker basically created a sort of guidebook for himself for, did not create a screenplay, and basically coached uh, the actors about what generally they'd be doing in a sequence and didn't tell any of them what anyone else was doing. So oh, wow. So, and the only reason he's able to do it is because he was shooting on, on digital. You know, I mean, you couldn't do that with a film camera. Can you imagine a filmmaker showing up and saying, all right, I hope this goes well. And we're also burning however many hundreds of dollars a minute to shoot it, you know? Wow. Right. And it's a truly fantastic film. It should never have worked, but because of the fact that he had the time he needed and the resources that were inexpensive, he was able to create this. And, uh, and it, it's a truly fantastic film that I think will really surprise viewers. Do you think that the, uh, since the book focuses more on the, the indie, the indie film scene, especially in science fiction, is there something about the indie film scene that you think is, I don't want to say more to the roots of science fiction, but maybe that's where I'm going at. Well, only in the sense that uh, science fiction has always been interested in what's next. And, and I think that ethos is the only thing that keeps science fiction alive. Science fiction dies when someone finds a successful franchise and then milks it to death. Because the greatest thing about science fiction is being blown away or surprised or shocked by this new thing this something that you haven't seen before unless it's uh nostalgic love for something retro you know like if you have a movie like um 
uh, Sky Captain, The World of Tomorrow. It's clearly a love letter to uh, a time from the past. Right. But even then, still using a new technology to capture it. So I think in, in one respect, independent film is the perfect place for science fiction because all bets are off. So it does, it sort of democratizes the idea of science fiction storytelling in a way that it never did before. When you had so many gatekeepers, there was a certain number of things that had to, you know, boxes that had to be checked. You know, you had to have your stalwart hero and you had to have your second act specific complication and you had to have a very clear prologue or some expositional character explaining this crazy high concept world. And the great thing about science fiction is like none of those things are required. You can have them if you like them for your film, but they're not required anymore. So uh, we've stepped into a world where we're allowed to genuinely just be explorers again. Yeah, you you mentioned that, um, especially after 2000, science fiction movies, even if they were talking about something in the future, reflect there are timestamp. They reflected the time it was it was kind of made. Do, do you think that's? I mean, I mean, it's, you make a case it's true with the indie films. Do you think it's true with some of the bigger budget? Uh, ones that uh, Hollywood produces also that, that uh, their timestamps also. Yeah, I think in some ways it's actually a little more painful to watch the timestamp in mainstream film because I think mainstream films, especially studios that are trying to catch the now, uh, they do a bad job of catching the now, and it's already the then before it arrives. Um, and, and, and some ways, and sometimes it's subtle. Like when you watch two thousand one, you're not particularly put off by the fact that some of their fashions are just a little bit sixties. But when you watch 2010, you can't help but notice this must have been made during the height of the Cold War, right? Because the entire premise of the film is Russians versus Americans. We can't even get along, you know, enough to save humanity, you know? So so it's interesting. Yes, it's a perfect uh, reflection of its time. It came out at the same time as movies like Ruskies did, you know? And they were all talking about that. Now when we watch it, we can watch 2001 and not feel like it's dated. It's this immortal film. But then we watch 2010 and we're like, it's pretty entertaining, but man, it really feels of its era. Mm. Right. So like we were talking about studio films that have kind of done that. I think one of the ones that I've watched most recently that have that has really kind of startled me and made me really re- re- rethink my use of technology has been The Circle. Mm. Seeing The Circle? Yeah, I think if we're talking about the same one, no, no, actually, no, I... We had a film called Just Circle that was in the book. I thought that one. You, are you talking about the one with Tom Hanks? Yeah. The one that's sort of yeah. No, I actually I read a bit of the book that it's based on, and it terrified me to the point that I put the book down, intending to just take a short break from it, and have just basically been terrified to return to it because it really <laughs> well, does make you sort of rethink life. You know, it does. It says, "Well, I, I carry the cell phone. Do I want the cell phone? Do I want to be?" I. It really does. It's um. In fact, I was talking Miles. I was talking with Dave Sellers, the guy that listens to the podcast. Uh, today at because he worked where I do and he was just telling how he just watched a circle and he was like I just want to get rid of every piece of technology I own <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah well and I mean Black Mirror is a fan another fantastic oh, yeah. of a show that will immediately make you recoil from any piece of electronics in your house yeah <laughs> and of course we uh, watch it and go back to it and here we are in Skype recording a podcast that people listen to in their digital devices so exactly well we're like we're like abused spouses right like they're gonna hurt us but we just keep coming back because you know the relationship right now is pretty good (laughs) oh oh man i'm disturbed now all over again yeah no it's super inappropriate comparison but like (laughs) the the history of humanity is that isn't it like we keep we keep revisiting things that keep screwing us over and for some reason we think we're gonna we got it figured out better the next time 
until we right. fail again, you know? Right. right. Oh, I'm disturbed. Great talking to you, Chris. Thanks. No, <laughs> sleep well. Yeah. <laughs> tell us again the name of the book and also tell us where people can pick it up when it comes out here in a couple of days. Sure. Um, the name of the book is Indie Sci-Fi, excuse me, Indie Science Fiction Cinema Today. And then the subtitle is Conversations with 21st Century Filmmakers. Um, my name is Chris Vanderkam, one of the authors, and my wife, Kathleen Fernandez Vanderkay, is the other author. Um, the easiest place would be you can either go to McFarland, McFarlandBooks.com, which is the website for the publisher, or you can go to Amazon, obviously, because you can pre-order there as well. So even if it comes out beforehand, you'll still be able to take a look at it. And um, and those are probably the two easiest places to get it. And like I said, uh, there's over, I think, right in the ballpark of 50 to 55 different filmmaker interviews in there. So we cover an awful lot of movies. And that's not even all the films. We cover several other films in the book that we don't have conversations for. But those are the ones where I felt like this film is worth having a conversation about and for telling other people about. So, um, you know, and, and the other thing is, like, like I said, since they're indie films, my hope is that uh, diehard science fiction fans will see, have seen a handful of these already. But there will be some fresh ones in here that will surprise them that they'll want to seek out when they hear the conversations. That's awesome. Any of the uh, interviews that stuck out to you as being, I mean, I'm sure they're all notable. That's why you included them in the book. But is there any in particular that really struck a chord with you as you were doing the interview? Um, yeah, well, I'll say this. All the conversations were great and all of the films were really good. It's the reason I wanted to talk about them. But just as far as sheer honesty of what came out of a person that created a film, there were two, uh, two filmmakers, Michael J. Cospia and um, Brandon Drake. Uh, we're both screenwriters and uh, Michael J. Cospia wrote a film called Suicide Theory and Brandon Drake wrote a film called Visioneers, which if anybody is a, a diehard fan of Zach Galifianakis and went hunting for movies after they saw the Hangover films, you might have stumbled upon this super indie film. But these two movies, the way that these guys talk about them, there's a level of passion uh, of what came from their lives, the frustrations and the anxieties and the angst about where they were in life and in society that just sort of exploded uh, onto the screen. And in such an unfiltered way, it's the reason why when I watched the movies, I connected to them, even though it wasn't directly my experience. I just felt it. And it was because these guys were so strongly motivated to write it. And it's just these really small films that have really big ideas in them. And those two conversations are as unfiltered a conversation about uh, about where ideas come from and how sometimes it's not about sitting down and coming up with an idea. It's about an idea forcing its way out of you. I hope you won't mind this question, Chris, uh, but it, it amused me. And I'm so, already offended. Uh, <laughs> 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 and you're what, I, you should be, probably all represent your wife's uh, opinion. Uh, so I have to ask you, in, in one of your blogs, you said you both have a little disagreement. One of the few that you actually do have about the movie 28 Days Later. Is it a zombie movie or not? Okay, so yes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to plead both sides of the case because I am fair and equitable. Um, <laughs> and I'll start with my, well, I'll start with hers because mine sort of builds off of hers. She is of the belief there are specific parameters of what defines a zombie. And there has to be because otherwise you start including things like mummies or Jason Voorhees, right? Because they are things that died and came back from life and kill people. You know, like right. she's basically, her idea is basically like, if you don't put a fence around this thing, anything can come crawling in, then anything becomes a zombie and there's really no definition to it anymore. So to her definition, she's saying there's a very clear definition for what we consider a zombie now. George Romero made those rules in his franchise and 
I mean, I, I'm sure you guys know there are hundreds of films that have basically built off the mythology of George Romero. Yes. And they have they've stuck with that framework. So her argument is 28 days later breaks numerous of those rules. You know, the people don't die. They immediately turn into whatever. They don't really eat people in the traditional sense. They mostly just attack and mutilate them. But it's not really to feed. It's both, mostly just because they're out of their minds, right? So there are these elements that completely shift what you would consider the standard zombie mythology. And so in that respect, I think she's 100% correct. And so does she. However, my <laughs> thinking has always been those were not the original zombies. The original zombies were uh, people that looked like they were dead because of some drug that they were given in, say, Haiti or in any voodoo practicing country, maybe in South America or Africa. And then they became uh, slaves of the will of the voodoo master, right? So they were never actually dead. They were these things that were following the voodoo master. They were still human, but they were being controlled. They were in the thrall of this human being. It wasn't until George Romero came along and created Night of the Living Dead, which, by the way, was originally going to be called Night of Anubis, and it wasn't about zombies at all. It wasn't until the, after the movie came out, people randomly started calling them that, and then he eventually copped to it when he made Dawn of the Dead, that those became the definition of a zombie. So my argument has been, well, if there's already been one massive evolutionary leap from voodoo zombies to what we consider George Romero zombies, then who am I to say this new leap where um, Zack Snyder has made them run in the remake of Dawn of the Dead or uh, in 28 Days Later uh, where uh, Danny Boyle has made them uh, rage virus monsters. Who am I to say that that doesn't belong as the new evolution? I'm sure that there were people who were purists about voodoo zombies who were mad that you know this young upstart Romero came along and took away their stories about colonialism and how white people ruin everything, you know? Um, and and so in, in, in my way, while I completely agree that she's right, that that is what a zombie has been since George Romero started, I'm a little more open-minded in the respect that I say, I don't know. I don't know if they're zombies. I think they might be because I don't know when the evolutionary step happens and when the new definition of zombie comes about. But I do like the idea that you posit that, you know, the original zombies were really a controlling of will. Uh, the sense where a person came under the influence unwillingly under the control, almost like a mind control type thing. That, yeah. Uh, and it was, it, it was that, sort of a halfway between hypnosis and some sort of use, you know, and uh, which is an interesting way, more scientific based than our lack of explanation for the new zombies, which most people think is a, a sort of a science based monster. Right. Right. Interesting. Interesting. In a lot of ways that broadens it up that there's a lot of ways that someone can be a zombie. Then if you go with the original definition, yeah. Yeah. Anytime we subjugate ourselves to someone else and let them control us. Yeah. And I mean, and if you look at it from that perspective, it also opens you up. To, I, it's one of the reasons why it does make me a little bit sad that Romero zombies are the dominant one, because there could be a lot of really fascinating stories about traditional style zombies. If you, uh, if you transposed it to what's going on in the world now, you know? Oh yeah. Is, is does, has social media made us zombies in some way? Is there some, you know, is there some element where we can, we, what in life is a zombie master now? What would we consider that? You know, Ooh, it's fascinating. I, I, I teach a, um, article to my comp, my composition kids and they, uh, it's called my zombie myself. And it's a, some, some writer wrote it and he talks about the rise and the popularity, mostly because of walking dead in zombie, in the zombie genre and how the reason we're so fascinated by it is because, you know, answering emails and, you know, dealing with all the, the things that come through social media is a lot like slaying zombies. They keep, keep coming and you keep slaying them just to stay alive. 
Yeah, that, that's a fantastic uh, analogy. Yeah, it is. So, but well, hey, we just appreciate you so much sitting down and chatting us with with us here in the Sci Fi Diner. I, I listen. It is an enormous pleasure, and I th- I may have told you this off air, so just so that it doesn't look like I'm sort of pumping you guys up because I want the credit for looking <laughs> cool. Um, but before I became uh, a filmmaker and an author, and before I went back to school, I was a landscaper. And I was a landscaper in Florida. Yes, I know that's the stupidest possible place you could decide to work outside 10 hours a day. <laughs> um, but when I was a landscaper, the only thing that kept me alive every day, walking 16 miles a day, edging sidewalks and blowing off pavement, is being able to listen to shows with passionate people who talk to me and to everybody else about stuff that we loved. And you guys were one of the groups that did that for me. Oh, and awesome. it meant an enormous amount to me. And I know it does to a lot of your other listeners. So thank you guys for being that. And then, and I, I promise you when I, t- I, like, I walked for 10 hours a day. So when there's a show that's been on for this long and you discover it and it's been on for a while and you get to go back and you get like back episodes and you get to catch up, it's like the greatest discovery in the world. So I just really appreciate what you guys have done for uh, sci-fi fandom. Oh, well, thank well, thanks. You. Yeah, thank you. That's awesome. And we appreciate for what you're, what you're doing to continue to foster the sci-fi community with your new book. Um, well, I will endeavor not to drop the ball from here forward. Yeah. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about you, where can they find out more about you and your writings? Uh, well, Kathy and I have a website called We Are Your Neon, uh, W-E-A-R-E-Y-O-U-R, Neon. Um, and that's basically our hub, weareyourneon.com is our hub and we've got a bunch of different sections. We've got all of like the lists that we've created um, either at websites where we've done top lists or lists we've created uh, the, of like, we have ones for all of the movies that appear in our books so that you could go and look at them and find out where you could find them. Uh, we have sections for all of the short fiction we've written online for all of our journalist, uh, journalistic articles, uh, links to the documentary, actually uh, all of our books, so that's probably sort of the best hub to go to be able to find. If you're looking to find anything else other than what you already know of us, that'd probably be the place to go. Awesome. Well, Miles, anything else before we let Chris go? Uh, Chris, this sounds like a very fascinating book your wife put out. Um, can't wait to check it out sometime soon. Well, I, I actually, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll say it on here so you can hold me to it. Did I send you guys a copy? Because if I haven't, I will make sure that you guys get a copy of it to read. So, because I feel like, this could fuel you guys show for several more months, just working off of the stuff that you might not have caught from in here. There we go. Yeah. That'd be awesome. If you would send us a copy, that'd be great. Absolutely. We'll do. That'd be great. And uh, yeah. who knows, maybe miles, we can do one for sci-fi rewind. Yeah, that, that'd be good. So, And we are back with some dessert. Miles, what's for dessert tonight? So tonight, uh, we're, we're going to talk about great uh, sci-fi space battles from, from our TV shows. We talked about uh, great great space battles in the movies. So t- tonight, we're just going to talk about it in the TV shows. It's not a top five. The list I came up with, I, I don't necessarily say they're in a particular order. I, I, I just picked out five um listeners if, if 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 there's if there's great space battles in other TV shows cuz I, I got to be honest with you it was it was two of them are from Stargate uh, the Stargate shows and the rest are pretty much Star Trek so oh, and one battle Star Galactica too 
Right. Well, so what Miles is saying, if you don't like the list, blame him. Just saying. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But uh, <laughs> if you know, but if but if but if you know of other space battles from other 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 TV shows, let let's let's see let's see your list. We'll love talking. Yeah, about absolutely. It. We would love to hear uh, the battles that you think are maybe your top. Or maybe you agreed with us, but thought there should have been some honorable mentions that we didn't mention. So very good. So Miles, how do you want to tackle this list? Why don't we just start at number five and work our way down? Okay. Do you want to start with number five? Sure. So the 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 uh, number five, it's the Battle of Antarctica uh, from the Stargate SG One episode Lost City Part Two. Uh, it, it's it it's a great scene you have uh our heroes in um a um a, a gold uh cargo ship and they're trying to uh they're looking for a, a, a atlantis basically but um anubis and his fleet come into antarctica and um i think i think the tension's high the drama's high um but who, who who comes to the rescue? Uh, General Hammond in the Prometheus, and there is a squadron. Uh, I'm trying to remember that those F three hundred twos. I think they're called yes, something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Hammond and and the, the F three hundred twos, you know, hold Nubis's fleet until um, um, until they can um, open. It's it's not Atlantis. It's it's it, it, it's it's an ancient space, but what what they find um, it has it, it has lots of uh, drones, and so um, H- Hammond's ship and, and the F three hundred twos are not enough to deal with Anubis's fleet completely, but they're able to hold them back. But um, again, um, just a, a great battle scene. You see, er, er, you know. Sort of, you know, earth, earth, earthbound fighter planes and, and and a starship going at against the Gould ships. Uh, I, I've seen. It, I, I went back a few times to watch it. It's it's a great great battle. It is a fantastic battle, and uh, you know you're introduced to the Atlantis cast in this one, and it's just it's an incredible it's an incredible battle. You get SG one, you get the Atlantis crew, kind of all working together to make this happen. So, yeah, yeah. Very good. Well, number four is Star Trek, the original series, Balance of Terror. Now, since I have not, and I will admit it, as you know in the show, I watched all the Star Trek franchises except for original series. Miles, you're going to have to talk about this one. So this is the first time we see the Romulans in Star Trek. Um, And it's just two ships. It's just the Enterprise and this Romulan ship. And the Romulan captain is played... um, by Mark Leonard. Um, Mark Leonard played Spock's father, Sarek. But before he played Sarek, he played the Romulan captain in this. And um, it kind of plays like a submarine battle in some ways. Um, they, you know, both, both ships have suffered damage. They're trying, you know, try, trying to lure the other ship in. Um and, and what it, what ends up happening is um, the Enterprise manages to get uh, the, I want to say the killing blow, but the blow that really uh, 
neutralize the Romulan ship and the Romulan ship um, captain decides to, he has a brief conversation with Kirk and basically says, you know, you're, you know, we're the opponent, we're the enemy. Maybe another time we could have been friends, uh, but I have one last duty to perform. And um, he, he, he destroys his ship with all hands. Um, but it was the first time we saw the Romulans. Um, we kind of, uh, this kind of sets the tone for what we'll see the Romulans in, in future Star Trek shows. Uh, also just a lot of fans just think it plays like a, like an old, kind of like an old submarine movie Two submarines going at it, trying, trying to find each other, trying to lure the other one in. Um, but in space, uh, you know, you can say, okay, this is this is from 50 years ago, but um, I think it's a story. It, 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 it still holds up. Awesome, awesome. Well, what's our number three, Miles? Number three uh, is is Battlestar Galactica, and in Battlestar Galactica, there's many great battle scenes. Right. But I think, but I think probably the one that uh, might be the best was the one the Battle of New Caprica, where in the last season, the humans find this planet and they decide to settle it. They have the Galactica and the other ships kind of just orbiting the planet, but then the Cylons find them. And so, um, Lee Adama tells his father, uh, Bill Adama, we, we have to, we have to retreat. He, uh, this is when Lee Adama had the uh, Pegasus. That's and right. So they, That's right. So they retreat, um, they come back to rescue their people and there's some really great scenes in there. Uh, the Galactica that they jump, but they sort of jump inside the planet's atmosphere. So you see the Galactica kind of falling to the planet while it's launching its vipers. And then it jumps out. Um, another great scene is the, the, the Pegasus, um, to save the Galactica, um, they crap, you know, they managed to get all hands off the ship, but they, 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 they send the Pegasus into one of the Cylon base stars and it manages to take out two Cylon base stars with just one ship. Uh, visually inc- incredible scene. Um, still holds up now. Awesome. Awesome. In a number two is Stargate SG one season 10 counter strike allied forces versus the aura. So we have the um, we have the Earth forces, and we have uh, I think we have one Asgard ship, and then we have um, they managed to convince uh, the Lucian Alliance to to help them. They, they, so they, they have a brief brief alliance with the Lucian Alliance because the Ori is just is coming to the Milky Way galaxy. They're taking planets, and their ships are unstoppable. Um, we don't see uh, the Allied forces. The Allied forces lose pretty bad at this in this battle, but we just see how powerful the Ori are. Um, first, first, only time we see one of the Earth starships um, get destroyed. It's the um, I don't remember the, the starship's name, but it, the, it was the one that um, uh, Stargate Command gave to the Russians and okay. the Russian, you know. The, 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 the Russian um, uh, ship bites it. Uh, I, I remember Daniel Jackson manages to uh, 
escape the nick of time. He uses the ring transporter to, to get off the ship before uh, the ship is totally destroyed. It won't um, be the first time he's done that either. Yeah, he he's uh, he uh, he's escaped. Well, he has died, but he's always come back right. <laughs> a couple times. <laughs> you know, uh, Stargate. Yeah, it's start. Yeah, so uh, but visually a great scene, great 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 battle scenes. Uh, Stargate always gave us some really good battle scenes. I haven't even talked about Atlantis yet. It's just, uh, but um, but 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 the Ori was not dealt in, through space battles. It's they're, they're dealt in the movie The Ark of Truth. But uh, this was a good. Uh, Good battle and and uh, just just good seeing you know, where the conflict was going and what what uh, the good guys uh, were up against. So tell me about our number one because I mean I watched Star Trek: D Space Nine, but I love to hear your interpretation of this battle. So what is our number one battle? So the number one battle I had, and again this list isn't in particular order, uh, but something has to be number one. So it was this one. Uh, this this was the the series finale of D Space Nine, and they they really pulled out all the stops and given us a a huge dramatic battle with the Dominion and, and the Cardassian forces. Um, and this is really the infancy of CGI, so they were probably still using a lot of models um, for, for for some of this. But I think visually, it still holds up. But you, you just see the Dominion just beating the crap out of the, the, the combined uh, Starfleet, Klingon, and Romulan forces. Uh, but it, it's dramatic at the end because what's going on in Cardassia, uh, the Dominion have turned on the on, on, on the Cardassians, and the, the Cardassian ships uh, say, uh, you know, since, you know, basically since dominions turning on their people um they're, they're right in the line with the dominion and so they're in a position to um add their strength to to fight the dominion forces in space and so it's an interesting turn you know turnabout that uh the dominions one ally then becomes their enemy at the at the end of this battle very good well i think this is a good list there's a lot of things, reasons why we love sci-fi, but there's nothing like a great space battle. And th- these shows have given us great, great space battles over the years. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for putting together that list, Miles. My pleasure. And with that, we are going to get ready to wrap up the show. As always, you can get a hold of us by emailing us at the sci-fi diner podcast at gmail.com or visit us on our Facebook page. We would love to hear maybe your top five list on battles that you think are maybe the most important in science fiction. Or perhaps if someone wants to do fantasy, we haven't done that yet. Top five battles in fantasy. We could come up with a list like that, Miles. Yeah. Yeah, so that would be very cool. You can always follow us on Twitter. And we would love to have you support us on Patreon or just to uh, drop a little bit of money in the tip jar. No obligation. But most importantly, we're just glad that you're listening to the show and visiting us every week as we record shows. Thank you so much. And uh, anything else, Miles? No, I think we covered it. All right. Well, I believe that is about it. Until next time, we'll see you. Go ahead, Miles. Wrap up the show. Until next time, good night and good luck. We will see you. If you've enjoyed the conversation, the owners of this establishment would love to hear from you. 
Send your comments and feedback to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner. 